welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Welcome, everybody, to another Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Today, I have the great pleasure of being joined by the brilliant Michelle Golanska, CEO of Sesame Bank Hall. Michelle joined Sesame Bank Hall in early 2020 at the beginning of lockdown. SPG is one of the largest distributors of financial advice in the UK. Prior to this, Michelle has over 20 years experience in financial services with senior management or board roles within three UK insurance companies, including a startup specialising in life pensions, savings and retirement services and the hugely engaging Frank Starling. Frank is the founder and CEO of Variety Pack, a consultancy working with organisations to help them learn from opinions that were previously ignored, anticipate change and create more inclusive environments full of trust and cultures full of confidence that champion the underrepresented. Let's start with Michelle. And before we kick off, I just want to make it very clear that whilst this is going to be a showcase of what can be done with DNI as a project, DNI in itself is not a project. It's an ongoing process and it is not something that you can outsource, get done, tick a box and say, hey, that's all that there is to it. We've done it now. So, Michelle, could you set the scene by describing a little bit more about what SBG is and what, as a new CEO, you wanted to achieve from a DEI perspective? Thanks, Barrett. With pleasure. So SBG is a professional services organisation that provides services to our UK advisor community. So all types of business services in terms of helping them source products for consumers and look at running their businesses more successfully and overseeing their compliance. So we've been in business many, many years and we sell one or more of our services to about 25% of the advisors in the UK. From an SBG perspective, you mentioned that I joined as CEO in 2020. What made me kind of embrace diversity and inclusion was really it was driven on a personal level from the George Floyd coverage and my realisation that I actually had very little experience or understood very little around some of the challenges that are faced by people of colour in this country and my desire to want to do more but not really know where to start and what kind of bias people experience. So I talked to colleagues and realised very quickly that many of us felt we wanted to do something, didn't know what that needed to look like and also were quite apprehensive about doing or saying the wrong thing. So what I did is I worked with a colleague, Richard Goppy, who was very helpful in introducing me to some people who might have more lived experiences and understand maybe where we could go with this. So that's where I came into contact with Frank. I invited, I think it was about 11 people from across the financial services industry to talk about perhaps their experiences and maybe give me some pointers as to how in SBG we could do something within our own organisation, which started to raise awareness 
awareness and educate us all to the bias that might exist and how we can mitigate that and how we could become a truly inclusive employer. And probably at that time, the word inclusive was something that I wouldn't use regularly because it wasn't in my vocabulary. I knew that we wanted fairness and equality, but I, I didn't understand what that might mean. So Frank and many others joined me for a call and some of my colleagues to just discuss their experiences. And from that, I realised that actually to take this forward seriously, we needed to have some professional help. And that's when we worked with Variety Pack to actually help us maybe just discover where we were in our journey right at the beginning, what SBG culture was, uh, looked like and how our people felt. I wish more CEOs were like you, Michelle. Frank, so you've got this fantastic gig working with one of the best leaders in the industry. How did you go about it? What did you do? Can you briefly tell us what the process was? During that time, to echo Michelle's comments, it was a very challenging period for diversity and inclusion because SBG faced the task of how do we promote inclusion during obviously a global pandemic and at the height of social justice movements like Black Lives Matter. And I think what was evident from the beginning was there was a clear passion and intention to go beyond what we can sometimes see in the industry as as just plain tokenism. There was an intention to go further and to look at how the organization could craft a strategy that had purpose, that had metrics, and that amplified the voices of all team members. So when we first started off the partnership, it really kicked off with a discovery phase. How could we create a meaningful baseline, an independent baseline that would give us a good idea as to what's happening in the organization? How do our folks, our people of color, our black folks, our people who have invisible disabilities, our, our people who are neurodiverse, how do they feel right now? And what do they expect in relation to inclusion and belonging? Let's get a good handle of that. The second thing we're trying to establish is were there any perception gaps? Accenture talks about the difference between leaders thinking they're creating an inclusive culture versus the actual experience of employees. In fact, close to 70% of leaders assume that they are empowering their people to have a sense of belonging, and only 36% of employees agree. So could we define whether a perception gap was present? And if it was present, there were clear opportunities to improve in the future. And the third was really looking at the demographic data. How can we obtain rich demographic data across intersectionality? That word intersectionality coined by Kimberly Crenshaw really describes the layer cake of lived experiences, how you may be underrepresented or marginalized across many different characteristics. So we can get a good handle on that. That will give us a good idea as to where we can go moving forward. So that's really where it kicked off, doing that discovery piece, which is a combination of things like surveys and discussions to really get a good idea as to where we are now, where the organization was now. And then from that point, that led to defining what the kind of recommendations and strategy would be going forward. Okay, I don't want to necessarily give away any trade secrets about what our strategy was, but Michelle, how did this process go down with the leadership teams and the more rank and file people within your organisation? I was amazed by how many people were in similar boat to me, which was we want to embrace this and and we're keen to learn and actually gave their time to this. So I think there was universal support for it, which was brilliant. And we focused on three main areas, really. And just to your point, Barrett, I don't have any problem sharing any of our data because I do feel this is something if others can learn from our actions, then I'm very happy that they do so. So we focused at three distinct groups 
we looked at our colleagues in the broadest sense, the broad team, our senior management team and executive function, because everyone has a role to play in this. And people will have heard me talk before about this isn't a sprint, it's a relay. You all have to be committed to this for it to work. It's no good me wanting it to happen. If no one else does equally, it's no good if everybody else in the business does and the executive aren't engaged in this. So Frank talked about surveys and benchmarking. I mean, it's worth pointing out at the beginning of this exercise, we really only held three types of data on our people. One was age, gender and disability. And disability wasn't always well known. It was asked for, but not always supplied. And the other two really were driven around HMRC requirements. So that's an example of the kind of depth of data that we held at that time. What Variety Pack did is they came in and conducted an employee survey and also interview. So they got that qualitative and quantitative data that we needed to understand that benchmark and and where we sat. So from that, we created our own action plan, which effectively in 2020, one of the challenges I think as a CEO and maybe from a leadership team is you want to go really fast with this, but you can't, you have to embed it. It has to kind of organically work as opposed to being something that's a tell. So just to watch out for people is, you know, sometimes the pace of it feels like it's, you're not achieving as much as you want to, but that's because it's really important to understand how people are feeling and address your actions into those areas. So the actions that we really took were three. One was around education. One was around recognising bias and then looking at actions that we would take to mitigate that. And the other was around being transparent and communicating on the initiatives and also playing our part within our community, within SBG, but also into the wider financial services community. And sort of people have heard me talk about this club and country thing, making sure that we were sharing the learning that we had. So that's what we did. We set out after this discovery phase, which is humbling because you realise there are people who come together and tell you things that we had one member of our staff who was gay who came out and said I've never said this to anyone before and there are creating that sense of that safe space that sense of belonging was what we wanted so there were some real early kind of lived experience shares that made us more passionate about this to recognize the change that we could make and what we did is we set up an inclusion council which was formed of volunteers from within the business it had two members of the executive in it led by Ross Liston who's one of our executive committee members and we set up a series of groups focusing on different types of areas that we wanted to drive more inclusion and increase our diversity. So that's what we did in 2020. And and we had a plan of action that was looking at really understanding what our diversity inclusion targets were, what our strategy was going to be, understand how we could put measurement in place around that, develop a robust education program, and then review our recruitment and retention particularly. So that's where we focused in 2020. And that's play through into 2021. That's fantastic. And I think the point you make in terms of expectation managing both yourself and the people around you is very important because especially when you address this issue, there is a very quick fix mentality within society and this is not a quick fix. So Frank, going back to the process, how do you feel it was received? What kind of feedback did you get in terms of engagement? Michelle's already said people started opening up. Do you find that as a regular thing when you do this sort of stuff? Or is it a particular thing that when it's not been done before, that people just open their arms and have so much to get off their chest? I think there are always challenges when it comes to launching any kind of diversity and inclusion initiative. I think the first challenge is the language usually isn't flattened. 
you know, we use words like diversity, equity, belonging, allyship, inclusion, but in a practical sense, what does that mean to a leader? You know, what is their individual and collective responsibility to foster these values? So I think really establishing where we were was a really key task and creating that safe space for people to engage. And overall, I think there was a really great sense of how do we show up for everyone in the organization by participating in the survey. Of course, when you conduct any kind of survey, which focusing on diversity and inclusion, there's always going to be a bit of a learning gap. We all have different lived experiences. We all bring as much of ourselves to work as we choose. And therefore, we may not truly understand each other through a cultural intelligence perspective. So it was really trying to identify, were there any blind spots? Were there any opportunities to go further into people's experiences? And overall, I would say the the support was was really astounding. And I think the progress as well to where we are today, again, is a really exciting journey for SBG. And I think many organizations can struggle to get their leaders and the wider team on board to being open, to being transparent. And the reason why they sometimes do struggle is there isn't a presence of psychological safety. You know, psychological safety I'll define as the ability to speak your truths without shame or judgment. You know, we can sometimes be scared to say the wrong thing. And that means we end up saying the wrong thing anyway. And the other challenge is we can sometimes be very conscious of innovating. In order for us to not mask or cover aspects of our personality, we have to be able to be in an environment which we would define as a safe space. So I think the great thing is that the organization was willing to ask the uncomfortable questions, was willing to take a deep dive into the data and look at where improvements could be made and then really consider what kind of framework is going to be relevant to this strategy going forward. Can we just sort of delve a little bit more about the kind of people that were more involved? So I sort of want to talk about things, what did you do in terms of looking at unconscious bias and things like that because sometimes the perception around DNI is that it, it focuses on the underrepresented and minorities only and doesn't take into because you're not going to change cultures unless you change the mindset of the majority. Did you include a big number of people that come from a privileged norm sect, if you see what I mean? I would always define diversity as everyone because you may be underrepresented in a particular organization, but sometimes we base diversity on, as you say, what we would consider to be privileged or if you're overrepresented, let's say, by your race or gender. But I could also be underrepresented through, let's say, my mental health status or my neurodiversity or my disabilities, etc. So from the get-go, it was always about including everyone in that process to amplify everybody's voices, but at the same time, adding this layer of demographics and intersectionality to look at where are the key areas of concern. So when we connect the quantum call data to the demographics of the organization, what kinds of themes and blind spots were present and how could we ensure that we're building equity? And what I would define as equity is, is fairness. So if I was underrepresented in the company and I required more resources, more support, maybe a particular policy in order for me to be myself at work, in order for me to have the flexibility I require, let's try to identify that in that discovery phase so we could then look at what would be the meaningful actions going forward. So intersectionality is a very uh, key point in this because people can, as Franca said, have privilege and be underrepresented and be prejudiced against 
all at the same time. We've just done a series of events and podcasts on that sort of thing. Michelle, I know you were involved in one. And you yourself as a woman and somebody who didn't go to university has that intersectionality issue in terms of what does a normal CEO look like and it isn't you. Did that come into your thinking what you wanted to try and achieve? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, I had my own lived experience, you know, and being female, I mean, I have been remarkably supported through my career and, you know, mostly by men. So the last thing I wanted to do was to exclude anyone. So if I'm on a journey for inclusion, I don't want to do that at the exclusion of a whole raft of the population. But recognising, I think where we came from, it was a bit more simplistic, to be perfectly honest, Barrett. It was that we were looking at groups that were focusing on sexual orientation, gender, religion, faith, carers, ethnicity and disabilities. And, and so what we wanted to make sure was that in that representation of the groups that we established, that actually we had people who could speak to those topics with some lived experience. So that was the core kind of aim. We didn't have an abundance of people who could, which is an indication, I guess, of our diversity day one. But what we did have was a very willing group of other people who potentially like myself, who wanted to understand and wanted to understand how they could be an ally. So I think we faced more into that. If I could just give you a kind of a, a little bit of a colour to where we started. Frank talked about the survey that they did. So there were three main questions that we looked at in terms of this pulse survey. One was SBG is an inclusive place to work and around 73% of people thought that was true at the beginning. Another question was I feel I can bring my whole self to work 75%. So this all sounds fairly positive. And then there was a third one I can voice opinions without fear of negative consequences and that was 66%. So actually, you know, whilst they're broadly above, the majority of people feel they can, that's still a way to go to really be where I think we would aim to be. And our target, and I'll be honest about this, our target in the next two years is to get that to 90%, because those are the key things that people need to feel to be able to bring their true self to work, to feel that they belong. So we want to create that. And I think we picked up a bit earlier on leadership. We understood from discussions with Variety Pack, but also with others around the industry, that the behaviours and attitudes and visibility of leadership in this was going to be critical in kind of affecting a cultural change and also a procedural change because some things were around processes and policies that we needed to address it wasn't just behaviors it was actually ensuring that as a company we set the standard for the expectation moving on to the importance of data and interpretation of data frank from your perspective how important is it to get a better quality data and to use it well I think it's critical to have a clear understanding as to where your organisation is. What many companies set out to do when they think about diversity and inclusion is ultimately just looking at piecemeal interventions. You know, we'll sponsor a particular event, we'll have a talk internally without maybe turning inwards and really considering how we can amplify the voices of our employees. What's their expectation of inclusion? What's our level of psychological safety? How inclusive are our leaders? You know, how are we tackling things like unconscious bias in the organization? So data on that, I think, is crucial. There can sometimes be a misinterpretation on how data is used. The quantum call points, the surveys, the pulse surveys, etc., they are crucially important. But at the same time, it's also about how people feel. To Michelle's point, you know, looking at those three questions, those three areas, really help to 
identify how does a person feel in an organization? You know, do they feel included? You know, do they feel like they're part of the team, their voices valued? Do they feel like there aren't any glass ceilings or sticky floors in order for them to progress through the organization? Do they feel that they can speak their truths to their line manager or to other leaders in the organization? So things like that, I think, are also really important. And they don't always come up in the mix of a survey. And Michelle, I know that you are a goddess when it comes to data. And so what has that data allowed you to do? What are the outcomes that have presented themselves that have empowered you as CEO to start shifting emphasis and give guidance to a more diverse and inclusive future for SBG? I mean, I do like data, especially when you have people sharing opinions, because that's really, unless the cultural change will only come about by people belief changing. So I think the biggest things that have come out of this for us in terms of that data is recognise from a, say, recruitment perspective, that we probably falling into the trap that many other employers do, where we had schemes which were sort of refer a friend, and we were sort of positively promoting those and remunerating on those as well. And actually, what we found was that we were kind of fishing in the same pond. So we kept getting the same type of people. Well, actually, if you want a more diverse workforce, you need to look more broadly than that. So understanding the kind of data that came back from a recruitment perspective enabled us to feed into the review that we were undertaking in terms of our HR policies and processes around recruitment and promotion. The other piece that we looked at were kind of the demographics that existed around our promotions and talent pool and whether those were representative of our community community or indeed society. So you get some data points that just say, well, do we square up to what we'd expected to see? And actually quite often we didn't. So it enabled us to focus energy in terms of some of maybe the hotspots that we saw, but pretty much one of the biggest pieces of data that came back was around people just not understanding, feeling that they were excluded from a language perspective. And I don't mean that from a second language perspective. I mean, there's lots of words that we've used in this podcast today, which some people who are listening may not know and understand their meaning. And that very much was myself and many of my colleagues at the start of this journey. And what we tried to do was to create that safe space where people could speak and could be forgiven for perhaps being clumsy in their language, where people knew they didn't mean offence if they used a word that was potentially inappropriate. So that's really important in this, because if people aren't comfortable to voice their opinions from wherever they're coming from, they won't speak. And actually what we needed was more people coming forward and speaking. And this is about a journey of education. And it has to go into the behaviours of every person every day. One of the bits of data that was really two bits of data, because I know you want me to give you data, Barrett. So these were specific DNI questions that we added to our annual colleague survey. So one was I've witnessed bullying, harassment or discrimination in the last 12 months. Great result, 92%. Hadn't experienced. So you kind of think we're happy with that. And then the other one, how often do you feel you've experienced non-inclusive or micro behaviours from people in SBG? So this is the last 12 months this is, uh, this is talking about. And 60% were never, but we had... of our people felt that either on a kind of frequency of weekly to annually, they had experienced that and 13% didn't reply. So that was quite shocking to me. And it's really getting under the skin of this conception gap. You know, you sort of think, well, 92% don't ever see bullying or harassment, but actually 40% of people either aren't prepared to say or have said that they have experienced non-inclusive or micro behaviours. So really, that's where data can help because it really starts you to focus on the right things and listen to what your people are telling you. That is so true. And I think for those people who are newer or new to these series of podcasts, I can recommend you listen to Frank Starling and I 
talking about microaggressions in an earlier podcast, which uh, is downloadable. Now, Frank, looking at what Michelle has been talking about, as an outsider, how do you think SBG has changed culturally? I think the most significant improvements in the organisation have been around both inclusive behaviours and leaders identifying what it means to be inclusive. And that, I think, has led to improvements in many different factors, the metrics that Michelle pointed to there. Of course, it's always an ongoing task. The world of diversity and inclusion is constantly changing. But to be able to set out with some clear intentions on where the organisation would like to be in the next few years has really helped to develop a strategy which is meaningful And at the same time, we have an organisation that is fully bought in to creating this change. So I think that is incredibly positive. So overall, I think there are lots of key areas where we've seen improvements in inclusive leadership, in psychological safety, and generally how people feel included in the organisation. So let's go back, Michelle. I want to talk a little bit more about the Inclusion Council, because um, inclusion is often the neglected second cousin to diversity at times. Could you tell me a little bit more about the frequency, the structure of it, and who gets involved and what kind of outcomes it's actually had? We've actually changed. This is the other thing I'd, I'd share with people, this kind of evolving and changing. So the Inclusion Council was set up in 2020. And ran through the whole of 2021. We had a review of that, the Inclusion Council themselves, and they're changing the structure for this year. So I'll touch on that in just a second. But essentially, as I said, it's kind of manned by volunteers from across the business who were keen to add their kind of support and weight to this journey for us. And so it's a mixture of grades and people, different roles within the business. So as a business, we gave the time and we also gave some funding to this. I think we put aside about £40,000 or something that we said that they could have as resources available to them as a community. It was led by one of the executive members and as I said before it focused on each area there was a group of about three people for each of the different areas of focus whether it's gender or abilities or other that really they were looking at what could we do in that space within the business from an education so that kind of tasks were education and awareness reviewing as a business our kind of approach to those and and if there were some barriers and bias that existed to people who might form part of those communities. And essentially what they did is they came out with their own action plans and a timetable of activity. So both in terms of getting guest speakers in or people talking about lived experiences in terms of education, in terms of working with our marketing team to put material out within the business, but also out into the wider community on through our social media and focusing on maybe linking with key organisations and learning from others how they might have addressed that. I'll give you an example, the carers community. We worked with the carers community. Obviously, last year was particularly important for people who and challenging for people who cared for others through COVID and particularly for those parents who had children who were homeschooling and all of the challenges they were facing. What we did as an output from that through that carers team is we actually added to our carers leave. So we now have and we've made that into policy now for 2022. We now have 10 days carers leave that we give that's available for our colleagues to take in the event that they need to focus on commitments 
at home. And we also raised awareness of the challenges that are faced within that community. And we supported and sponsored sort of National Carers Day. All in all, I think it gave people a platform to talk about their own situation. And actually, in a recent data that we gathered, we actually found out that of those people that completed our survey, around about half of them had caring responsibilities. So it's a big community that need our support. And I think the other thing is in all of our employee engagement annual survey scores, carers actually came out. If we looked at them, and this is we only know this from enhanced data, they actually scored lower across the board on all of the categories from standard employee engagement survey questions. These weren't DNI specific. This is about my business and my company and my team and my manager and things. They scored lower. So that's given us, again, more ability to focus on that community and understand why potentially as a community within SBG, they don't feel as motivated and supported as, as others within our community do. That is amazing and a huge result because obviously more motivated people work better, more efficiently produce greater positive outcomes for the business as a whole. Do you expect, I mean, I, I would expect, but do you expect that those numbers to change after all the differences that you've implemented and some, some of which are fantastic? And I would encourage every company that's listening to this to embrace some of the things that you're doing. Obviously, yes. Generally, we'll look at all colleague feedback in terms of through our independent annual survey, which is anonymized and run by a, a separate company for us, of which we can get the data. But actually, our overall aim is to be truly inclusive. There were things that we wanted to achieve that we didn't. And I think that there are, you know, and this is part of this process. So actually, one of the things that was highlighted to us is that our website is not terribly attractive if you come in from an underrepresented group. It doesn't sort of display the culture that we're working to embed within the business. And that's an area that we wanted to do more on. And we found that we have resource constraints. Business demands meant that that was something that we haven't as yet been able to tackle. And that's something that we'll be looking at this year. So again, you know, there will be a whole list of things that you want to do that at times is quite challenging and one of the things that we the other points of learning that came back from the inclusion council themselves was is less better did we try and do too many things at once and actually would we have been better to focus on maybe one or two initiatives per quarter but put more resource behind it to really embed that so that we didn't feel like we were doing little and often so those are some of the learns that come through but of course yes we have set out with our board as well Barrett this is something that's really been important is taking our board with us on that journey and in fact get getting guidance from that and we have expanded our targets for 2022 we had originally really we were part of the women in finance charter we had a, a gender pay gap target which was the only real dni target we had within the business when i joined of which we'd made great progress actually but we've extended that to cover ethnicity pay gap look at gender balanced workforce look at our representation in our talent programs our senior and middle management look at balance shortlists for recruitment and look at a balanced board. So those are some of the broader things that we've looked at at a higher level for the business. And we engage with our board bi-monthly on this. And every six months, we give them an update on where we are with that. So really, that commitment is from the top, but is driven by the work and activity of the broader community. One of the things I believe in, Frank, is, and I don't know if SPG do it everywhere, but I'm sure they do it somewhere, is the idea of blind CVs, that names in universities should not be on CVs. It's those little kind of practical things, Frank, that come out of a project like this. I think an intervention like removing any data that could be subject to a bias on a CV, on a resume, is actually effective. 
However, it doesn't necessarily tackle what the core issue is. The core issue might be that a hiring manager harbors a particular bias or lacks cultural intelligence, and therefore, beyond their competency framework that they would use to hire for a particular position, there may be a level of gut feel or subjectivity that they build into that process. So ideally, as opposed to maybe just looking at something like removing that bias data from CVs, I think a really important strategy when looking at increasing underrepresented groups in an organization is not just maybe removing some of the aspects of a CV that may foster bias. It's really how do we coach and train the hiring managers to be more cognizant of what their biases are. That helps to create a process which is generally more inclusive and it also helps to increase the cultural intelligence of those individuals. So when they are using a competency framework to hire for a particular position, we're helping them to be a bit more aware of exactly the kind of the gut feel and the subjectivity that can seep into some of those decisions. So I think it's really critical to look at it from both sides. There are tactics that can be used to just generally increase representation. But if we're increasing diversity and those individuals are coming into an organization where there isn't a DNI strategy, there isn't a sense of inclusion, and we're unwilling to ask the uncomfortable conversations, chances are they will either leave the organization at some point or the environment doesn't allow them to thrive. It doesn't allow them to be the best version of themselves. And that can sometimes lead to something called the glass cliff. And that's similar to a glass ceiling where we can sometimes look at underrepresented groups who are maybe underperforming and look at ways that actually they wouldn't fit the organization. They end up kind of leaving or being asked to leave when in actual fact, it's maybe the organization that's got to take a harder look at what inclusion means for the company and how we can ensure that people are psychologically safe so they can be the best version of themselves. Michelle, where do we go then? What does the future hold in terms of you've done a lot and with a tiny amount of help from Frank, done it incredibly well. Where do you go forward then with this? We said right at the beginning, this isn't a sort of like project that once you've done your shell, it's an ongoing process. And I know you've got ambitions and we were talking earlier about secondary learnings, which we've discussed on. Are there any other ambitions that you actually have for what you're doing and other learnings that you already want to discover? I must say, we wouldn't have done it without Frank and his team. So just to make sure everybody understands that. Um, uh, So thank you to Frank and the team and everyone else who has actually helped us from across the industry, because, you know, others have been generous with their time and their resources as well. I think from the Inclusion Council, the Inclusion Council themselves reviewed their effectiveness and, and how they wanted to work moving forward and looking at kind of changing people in and out of that community so it doesn't become the same people so that we kind of spread the word it becomes more of a movement and momentum behind it so I think we still have a restructure of it and we're restructuring it in two ways now so we're restructuring it from those community tribes as we call them into two groups one is a task and action group which is kind of looking at helping to formulate the future strategy for the business and also what the goals and activities would be to achieve that and the second group is what we're calling an allyship group. And that's the people who are supporting that have got an active role in supporting the DNI goals that we've set ourselves and targets across the wider business and into our advice community and the broader financial services community. So that's where we're changing what happened there. I think some of the questions
questions we've asked ourselves at the end of this year, looking at last year, looking into this year is how do we use our new allyship group moving forward? So that's something we believe has got purpose and will have resonance. But what really are the objectives for that? Um, What do we need of the wider business? Because it is really about that cultural change feeding through into everyone where you get the success here. And another kind of learning was how do we better track inclusion metrics in our leader objectives? So we put them into our leader objectives, which is a task into 2021. But actually the tracking of those and understanding how people are performing has been a little bit more challenging. So that's some of the things from an inclusion council perspective that we're looking at. I think from a business perspective, I talked to you about that broadening of those objectives right across the business, going from the point where I told you we had age and gender and maybe disability to this very broad set of data that we now hold. So last year, we asked for extra data, which was included sexual orientation, religious beliefs, carers responsibility and ethnicity data on top of our standard data. During 2021, mid-year, we got about 40% of our people, our colleagues by us asking, gave us that data. By the end of the year, and as part of a broader survey, the colleague survey, that data collation went up to about 70% of our employees. But interestingly, of those that completed the annual survey, general kind of company survey, 20% less completed the diversity data. So there is still an apprehension around that that we want and an understanding of how we use that data. But that data gives us yet another platform to be able to move forward. And as I was discussing earlier, targeting specific areas and groups that we can see. So what we've been able to do is take that data and overlay it to the general survey questions so that we can understand if certain communities feel less supported in different areas than others. And that's giving us more refinement as an executive to focus our business activity, if you like, in terms of leadership focus, training, development. We already have had executive coaching from Variety Pack. We've already had senior leadership coaching and we've had leadership workshops, but more on that to come, I think. It's amazing that for such a company like yours, whose eventual clients are the whole of society, so your advisors will advise everybody from first-time buyers to net worth individuals from the wealth side, that you have to be able to represent society as a whole in everything that you do, because your eventual customer base via your advisors is society as a whole, and you don't want to be excluding anybody because you lose business that way. Frank, do you have any last words to say about what it was like working with SBG? And are they truly that much ahead of the curve? Are other companies beginning to wake up to the kind of things that they need to do, not only from a moral perspective, but from a sort of positive commercial perspective? Personally, and I say this from working both with many organisations across several industries in diversity and inclusion, because SBG started out with not just good intentions, but purpose, and the purpose to create both genuine change in the organisation and look at how it could challenge the industry. I think it's on track to become a a real beacon of, of what is possible within financial services in relation to diversity, equity and inclusion. So to date, it's been a pleasure to partner with the organisation, work with individuals like Michelle, like Ross, like Kate Sparks and see the progress, but at the same time, not resting 
and really looking at how improvements can be made. So we're, we're proud to be able to continue to partner in, in the background to help champion and support future success. And uh, I really look forward to what the next few years look like for the company. Uh, Michelle, do you have any final words of deep wisdom to impart? I think finally, I guess, specific to our market, our regulators are focusing on this as a topic and with good intent also. And I think this is going to become more part of the agenda and what's being discussed from an SBG perspective. But I know this is our competitors and others as well, supporting our trade associations, Amy and PIMFA for us as well in their voice into this and their kind of data. So I think what we should all do is to make sure that we share our experiences, but also harness and utilise the experiences of others. I was particularly moved and impressed by some discussion that I heard from Richard Roundtree and also Martin Reynolds. You know, there are others in this industry that are very willing to give their time and experience. And I think that will make the difference for all of us if we can actually learn from a broader data set across our industry to transform our industry, I think. And we're very pleased that SBG and you in particular have given such great support to our the Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum. And, and all I can say is you and SBG are living proof of one of our founding principles, which is DNI is good for business. And on that note, and on a request that any company listening to this should do something akin to what Michelle is doing, I bid you all goodbye and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. If you have enjoyed this episode, and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.